Welcome to the Michigan Opportunity, an economic development podcast featuring candid conversations with business leaders across Michigan. You'll hear firsthand accounts from Michigan business leaders and innovators about how the state is driving job growth and business investment, supporting a thriving entrepreneurial ecosystem, building vibrant communities, and helping to attract and retain one of the most diverse and significant workforces in the nation. Hello, I'm your host today, Ed Clementi, and I want to say welcome to the show to Harry Moser. He's the president and founder of Reshoring Initiative. Welcome to the show, Harry. And great to be here. And I know you're an old hand at uh, talking about these very unusual times we live in, but could you kind of tell us what reshoring is and what your just a quick sort of introduction of what reshoring initiative is? So reshoring is to once again produce in the U.S. a product that for some period of time was supplied from offshore. So producing it in China, India, somewhere, shipping it here, that's offshoring. Reversing that process, that's reshoring. And we actually track reshoring done by U.S. headquartered companies, think General Motors, but also FDI, foreign direct investment, done by foreign headquartered companies like like Toyota. And both of them bring jobs to the U.S. And the, the, the function of the reshoring initiative is to document, promote, enable, and advocate for those trends. And um, you, how did you get on this path, first of all? I mean, uh, I know you have a couple of Michigan roots, but how did you, uh, this is a unique initiative, so how did you get involved with it and what motivated you to get started with it? So a little background, grew up in New Jersey, went to MIT, University of Chicago, uh, ran companies in Kalamazoo and Ann Arbor. So I got some Michigan roots. Yeah, I was a little, little bit of credit, street cred, so to speak. Love, love there. It was wonderful. Loved both cities. And uh, the reason for the reshoring initiative, I, I retired from those companies that I was running and, and founded the initiative because I'd seen so many companies, so many industries in the U.S., in, in Michigan, disappear, wiped out by imports, wiped out by lower price product coming in from some some other country over, over the last 30, 40 years, but especially, say, 10 to 20 years ago when China joined the WTO. And and I, I'd seen the devastation, inner city, rural, et cetera, and decided someone had to do something because nobody was. <laughs> and so, so I decided I was the guy. The other thing, too, is that um, you had like firsthand experience, but your, some of your factories, what did you make, like uh, tool and die parts, or what was sort of your background? Yeah. Uh, coming up, I worked for GE and their large steam, large steam turbine generator and nuclear power divisions. Uh, I then later worked for a Danish foundry equipment company selling molding machines to foundries all over, all over the U.S., and then to... Uh, the, the most important, I, I was the president of Charmi, which now is called GF Machining Solutions. And then we made and sold EDM machines, so like wire EDM, die sinking EDM. Well, you asked what the tool you use to make a mold or a die. And we, we made and sold those and also five axis CSE milling machines. So you know, the core kind of metal cutting equipment you use in a high tech industry. 
And I, I know you sort of said it quickly, but you went to MIT, you got your degree in engineering, which is no fault, small feat, right? That's a pretty yeah. big deal. Two, two degrees. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. What, so it was engineering and what else? Well, mechanical, what kind of- mechanical engineering, bachelor's, engineering, master's. Wow. That's uh, pretty yeah. impressive. Um, and so obviously that helped lead to your field. So where did you think, and I noticed you mentioned, you know, with the WTO with China entering way back, but how did that sort of start this process? Was it, uh, you touched on it a little bit, but can you explain a little bit how come it started in the first place? Why companies started leaving the U.S.? You know, yeah, no. <laughs> basically price. You know, we've surveyed companies. Who, we're actually we're we've partnered with a uh, a company in Michigan called Plant Moran. Plant Moran, yeah. a big big owning consulting company, great great company. And we did a survey of uh, distributors and manufacturers and said to the extent that you import. Uh, components, products, it's tooling, et cetera. Why do you do it? Why don't you get it here? Why do you get it there? And overwhelmingly, they said price. And it was either price directly, the price is too high, or it was something related to price, like that product is not available in the US. And if you look up those products, you find out that they used to be available here, but nobody makes them anymore because they were put out of business by the low-priced import. So, so finally, we say 70 or 80% of that decision is price. And when you look at the difference, uh, we have uh, statistics on the U.S. price in comparison to the other countries' price. And our data is most robust on China, so U.S. versus China. And the Chinese price on average is about 70% of the U.S. price. The manufacturing cost is about 70% of the U.S. manufacturing cost. And companies look at that and they say, wow, it, it Either I'm going to go get the product there, or my U.S. competitors will, or my foreign competitors will, and I won't be able to compete. I'll be out of business. I'll lose even the jobs I have here today. So, so I, I can understand why they did it. And I mean, they went too far. They, they didn't do the math correctly. They had a lot, all kinds of faults in what they did. But, but the motivation was there, and it was the fault of the government for not leveling the playing field, making it so that. Price difference wouldn't be so great. You know, it's like it's like uh, you know honey you know, attracting the bear. You know, you, if, you, if there's too big a pot of honey and too big a hole in the tree, the bear is going to get the honey. And and we allowed that that to be too too attractive for companies. Yeah, and uh, just a little go back a little bit. I should have mentioned your name came to me from one of our previous guests, Nathan Oley, who you must know. He's with the. IEDC, the International Economic Development uh, Corporation, I believe. Council, <laughs> and council I think. Council, I, I couldn't remember the C real quick, thanks. And so you must have spoken to them, and they're a group that does a lot for companies like you're talking about. But I also noticed that you did a lot during the Obama administration, too. Like, were you well, working uh, with them a little bit? Well, never, never been paid by. <laughs> That's okay. Getting paid, you know. Right. I, I I was brought in for what he called the insourcing forum, which was more or less his word for reshoring or onshoring. And I met it with him in the White House and you know twenty five other executives from around the country. And I mean, it was a wonderful experience to meet them, to be in the White House, to shake the hand, you know. And uh, and 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 we've had a lot of interaction over the years with uh, the National Economic Council with the. Office of Management and Budget, 
with various portions of the uh, Commerce Department, like the uh, MEPs, the Manufacturing Extension Partnerships. You have an excellent one in Michigan. And and so th- th- for the with these various groups, then they call on us. They ask us for, for data. We provide data. We've been quoting it, big things that the president puts out. And, but then we tell them what they ought to do, and they don't listen. <laughs> well, it's one thing to be the messenger. It's another thing to get the message delivered. Um, the uh, But, you know, some other things, too, is that, um, you know, I, I know you've been quoted quite a bit, too, in a lot of publications as well, right, for this. Has it been a while? Has it been picking up since sort of the last couple administrations? Or has, I mean, I know in Michigan, I've actually interviewed a guest not too long ago that uh, moved his company here from, I think it was in China, somewhere from China, but he's based out of California. So he was, he wasn't even a Michigan company originally. Are you seeing more stories like that now happening? We have a a nice chart. It's just a video show. I'd be showing you the chart. And the, when we, the year we started in 2010 and that year, the total number of jobs announced to come back, was 6,000, 6,000 in 2010. Uh, last year, 2022, the total jobs announced in that year was 350,000. So Holy the, cow, yeah. the, the rate of jobs going back is 50, 60 times as high. Uh, and and in terms of why it happened, during the first, we say the first eight, 10 years, up until just before the pandemic, I call it the death of a thousand cuts. The, the companies um thought they were saying they knew they were saving a lot of money on the price but but finally when they looked at the duty and the freight and the, and the excess inventory and therefore the carrying cost of inventory the travel cost the, the the disadvantage of having engineering here and manufacturing there the intellectual property they looked at all this stuff and 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 they kept more and more of them kept saying yeah 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 but a gradual process and then with with the disruptions of the last couple of years with uh, Fukushima a while back, but then followed by COVID. Uh, the, somewhere in there, the Thai floods, uh, the Suez Canal blockage, the Russia-Ukraine, the whole experience of all these things, you know, losing weeks or months on delivery, and then hanging over all that now, the risk of uh, something happening over Taiwan. So, so companies see that that risk as you know potentially existential. There's a lot of companies here that if if everything from Taiwan and China got shut off for years, the companies would go out of business. And, and there aren't enough sources here to make up for it because there are, our sources are already busy and making the stuff they're making. So we increasingly the industry is seeing, especially getting out of China and Taiwan, but especially China as insurance. So, like, if if I had access to a board of directors, I'd say, "Do you have fire insurance in all your factories?" Oh, of course, you have to do that. I think, what's the chance of fire happening in all of those factories this year? Yeah, zero or a tenth of a percent. What's the chance of something going wrong with China and Taiwan, and you get cut off for everything you have coming in from those countries? More than zero or half a percent. You know. So what? So so we companies are starting to say. Paying modestly more here is insurance against the devastation that could happen. You're listening to The Michigan Opportunity, featuring candid conversations with Michigan business leaders on what makes Michigan a leading state to live, work, and play. Listen to more episodes at michiganbusiness.org forward slash podcast.
I wanted to ask you also, you said something when you were giving one of the reasons is about having the engineering here, but then having the manufacturing process like far away, right? So why is that? Because you're, you know, you're an expert, you've been in the field, you've had the same challenges and companies. Why is it, is it, does like the engineers have to walk around on the floor and see what's happening? Is it sort of like a physical experience or what is the challenge in that? You know, the best work on this has been done by two Harvard Business School professors, uh, Pisano and she, S-H-I-N-H. And they've looked at what they call the industrial commons or what happens to a, a community, a state, a country, if if the manufacturing leaves and you no longer have the uh, the, the linkage between the engineers and the, and the manufacturing people. And it, w- the way I describe it is that you need to optimize the product. And the only way to optimize the product is to know how it's going to be made and see it made. And you need to op- op- optimize the process of making it. And you have to have some influence over the product design and so that you can optimize the two of those together and sort of globally optimize it. And, and when those two are separated by, uh, what, 8,000, 10,000 miles and language and time zones and people that ne- almost never physically meet each other, it's very hard to optimize. Whereas when they're in the same building or in the same town or the same state, your odds are a lot better. That's a pretty interesting point considering, you know, even with COVID, right, uh, what were essential workers? And you're kind of making a case that some people need to be, you know, in the physical presence to actually see how things are operating, which also probably accelerated some of this process, too, is I I guess that kind of ties into the other question I wanted to ask you is supply chain, you know, all the disruptions of supply chain, what you probably don't know a percentage, but is it a significant percentage of the supply chain cost, too? Does that factor into a lot of these or is it more the danger of not having parts like because we got so used to just in time kind of things. I, I think the the best way to explain that I've got a wonderful chart. So a lady put out and she used it at the World Economic Forum, and she said up until a couple of years ago, companies put most of their emphasis on saving pennies on inexpensive components they were buying to go into their assembly. I think plastic parts, machine parts, castings, whatever. So saving pennies on those items, and now they're worried. They want to optimize and make sure they have the components, they have those pieces so they can make their product and sell it and make the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars by selling the product. So they're looking at where the money really is instead of nickel and diming over here. Now, that that doesn't mean they're going to pay twice as much or three times as much here because they can come out of China and go to Mexico and they could go to uh, India or somewhere else. So there's other alternatives for them. So the U.S. still has to be you know, within, say, 20% on price relative to the, the offshore competitor. But, but it's, there's, there's certain, they definitely see more advantage to local, to proximity, to essentially guaranteed delivery. So that's a, that's a great point as well, Harry, that, um, you know, that, that, that's really the evolution sort of of coming full circle on some of the supply chain issues because I imagine in this era, even of like a 3D printing also changing some of this factor too, because that's sort of an acceleration of an engineering process, right? Yeah. 3D printing has done amazingly well. I've got friends in the industry and, and it's, it's been a, a wonderful new process. Um, a lot is written about it saying that 
most components will be produced at the factory where they need them instead of being imported from somewhere else. So you need a fan, you'll make a fan. I mean, something like that. And 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 that makes sense for a sort of a one material process, but something that's a an assembly with electronics and wires and you know computer chips is on. You're not going to make those on on 3D printing. So the um, I, I, so I, I, every time I ask the additive manufacturing people to give me examples where where they've enabled reshoring, I don't get very much. I get a lot of here's this wonderful way that the U.S. You used to make it conventionally, and now they're making it with 3D. But I get very few cases of it used to be used to be imported conventionally, and now we're making it here with 3D. Anybody out there that has examples, I'd I'd love to hear them. Yeah, why don't you mention real quick what you're just should you just pull up uh, Reshoring Initiative? Is that the best way to yeah, find? Yeah, you it? pull up Reshoring Initiative or ReshoreNow.org. Okay. okay, all right. Um, a couple other questions, and this is more about trends. What trends do you, you've kind of touched on this a little bit, but is there other trends or what things should government be doing more to sort of uh, either make sure which companies are coming over or trying to help facilitate the process somewhat? Yeah. So certainly a lot of the action in the last year, year and a half has been President Biden's programs for uh, EV batteries, fair amount of that coming coming into into Michigan, like chips, uh, you know, PPE, pharmaceuticals, uh, rare earth minerals, and stuff. So a fair amount of it has been that subsidi- subsidies, incentives, et cetera, for hundreds of millions of dollars. So ma- major money. Uh, my, my concern is that um, that that they're I think of it them as applying tur- tourniquets or band aids, so they're not fixing the problem. They're keeping the blood from flowing everywhere, you know. So my concern specifically is that, with, for example, with the with the chips, that they will, we and everybody else will build so many chip foundries around the world because every, every country is doing, every major country is doing it, and we're building so many, and and there will be a an excess supply of chips in five years when all the foundries come on stream, and then and it's generally agreed the U.S. chip will. Have a cost that's twenty percent or so higher than, say, the Chinese or Taiwanese chip, and then we'll have excess supply because we don't assemble very many electronic devices like we, the computers, the cell phones, infotainment systems, et cetera, et cetera. Pretty much are made over there and shipped here. So we're going to have all these chips and not much use for them here. So we're going to be dependent on China to buy our chips to make the electronics and ship it back to us. And, and and they're not going to do that. They're going to use their own chips, and our chips are going to be too expensive anyway. So so I, I believe that what the government should do is level the playing field, which means much stronger skilled workforce like Germany, the apprenticeship systems, uh, get the dollar down by 20 or 30%. The dollar's consistently overvalued because of being the reserve currency. So get the skilled workforce, get the dollar down, and then companies will see that it makes sense for them to produce those electronic systems here and there'll be a market for the chips that the foundries are going to make. Well, you know, you kind of touched on the very last question a little bit. Obviously, you know, Michigan, we're probably, you know, in top five or so states for manufacturing still in the country. And um, 
but the talent thing is what I thought was more interesting that you brought up comparing us to like the German sort of apprenticeship program. So if you were sort of giving a mini commencement or to your 17 year old self, even though you went to MIT, uh, what would you tell someone today that's thinking of a career for the near future? Like, I, I guess I'd tell them that I'd be a better engineer today if I'd started as a toolmaker apprentice then. And, and the, just for, for most kids, most, almost all kids that are literate and can do any kind of math or said, here's the best university you can get into. Go, go for it. You know? Instead, they should, be, they should have a chance to say, what kind of career do I want? And once they identified that career, in many cases, if it's a, if it's a something like manufacturing or something technical, then starting with an apprenticeship, graduating, you know, maybe starting at sixteen with the apprenticeship, at twenty having your apprenticeship papers and an associate's degree, and then letting your company pay for all that, letting the company pay for a bachelor's degree in engineering, maybe maybe in business, is is a brilliant solution for most kids. If you look at the I did a chart once. I studied the. Um, I compared an English uh, major to a tool, an apprentice toolmaker. Looked at their incomes, paid, and and saw the toolmaker always made more money than the English major. And I paid half the difference in taxes. Invested the difference at seven percent. At the age of forty nine, the toolmaker had a million dollars higher net worth than the English major. But the guidance counselors don't have that. They're not handing it out to the kids. They're telling them million dollars more lifetime income versus high school, but they're not telling them what advantage there is relative to a, a good apprenticeship. And, and so we, we, we believe apprenticeship is the right solution. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, I can remember before almost all the big manufacturers had their own sort of internal apprenticeship programs at one time before even community colleges were created <laughs> way back if you look at your history. And uh, I know that that's something that's very commendable and I, I liked your answer. And um, so anyway, I uh, we're already at the end, Harry. Let, let me add very quickly. Yeah, we, go ahead. We have programs that NADC could take advantage of by which we can help uh, the state target filling supply chain gaps and help companies target opportunities to sell what they're making to companies that are now importing. So to to substitute their production for the imports. So if anybody at MEDC wants to accelerate reshoring in Michigan, we're here to help. Yeah, no, and I know a lot of our people that work at the MEDC do listen to the podcast, so hopefully someone will take you up on it. And once again, I wanted to thank our guest today, Harry Moser. He's the president and founder of the Reshoring Initiatives. You did a great job and you're on top of your game. And uh, thanks for taking time, Harry, to do this with us today. It's an honor. Honor. Good to be back to Michigan. Join us next week where our guest is going to be Jim Saber. He's president and CEO of Next Energy. Hear all about the different types of future energy on our horizon. The Michigan Opportunity is brought to you by the Michigan Economic Development Corporation. Join us and make your mark where it matters. Visit michiganbusiness.org forward slash radio to put your plans in motion.